guys. There is this thing that happens over there. No one knows what it is, but it gets really loud at like 5.03. So if it just gets really loud in like the most intimate part of my message, I'm so sorry. I don't know what I'll do. I, I don't know. We'll figure it out when we get there. Um, as I was going through my notes this week, I, I got finished and I was like, oh shoot, this is pretty heavy. This is a bit gnarly. <laughs> so that's my forewarning to you guys. Tonight we're talking about suffering. Everybody's favorite topic at church, right? That's what we come to church for, so. All right. Um, wow. Well, tonight as we get into this, I was trying to um, portray how, how we can really land in this part of the story really well, okay? There, there is um, a temptation to just kind of teach verse by verse and not really settle on where we've been and where we're going. And the only thing I could really think about was this uh, kind of grassroots underground film trilogy. It's called um, Star Wars. Anyone heard of it? Yeah, I was freaking obsessed as a kid, obsessed with Star Wars. My whole room was practically a galaxy far, far away. My bedspread was all Star Wars. All my posters were Obi-Wan Kenobi and Qui-Gon Jinn. I had the Darth Maul lightsaber. I had the Luke Skywalker lightsaber. I had every color of lightsaber. Um, I was Anakin Skywalker for Halloween. Uh, gosh, what else? What else? Um, oh, I tried to build a pod racer. Does anyone know what that is? Yes, I tried to build one. I, I, I guess I don't have the force, so it didn't work. I'm going to grab this instead. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Check. You want me to take that? Uh, yeah. Can you turn up channel one? Mm -hmm. Sorry, guys. That wasn't in the plans. Anyhow, okay. We'll just roll with it. But I was obsessed with Star Wars, okay? Now, the, uh, many years later, I was like uh, competing in wakeboarding. That was kind of my life. And one of the companies I was associated with was headquartered in Seattle, Washington. Does anybody know what was filmed in Seattle, Washington. It was Star Wars. And their headquarters were in the, the woods where the Wookiees were all filmed, okay? And I mean, I remember walking in there trembling with honor and respect because for the first time, I could feel that the Force was finally with me, right? I was so pumped. Now, who also knows that George Lucas made one of the most interesting cinematic decisions to start with episode four, five, and six. So in 1977, the first Star Wars that came out, I'm telling you, the first Star Wars that came out was episode four, A New Hope. As if there was any hope before and another episode before. It was like, the closest thing I can relate it to is a baby coming out of the womb with a full chest of hair and a full-time job. It makes no sense, right? Now, of course, it was originally supposed to be about the rise and fall of Darth Vader. We won't get at that. But what I'm getting at is if you were not already a Star Wars fan, you hadn't read the trilogy that just came out a couple months before, and you obviously didn't have access to Google in 1977, then you would get plopped into the middle of this story <laughs> where we have no clue who these people are, what they're doing here, or what any of this is about. And then in light of episodes one, two, and three, you find out 
Oh, that's why Obi-Wan is the sage he is. That's how Anakin got lured to the dark side, became a Sith Lord, as you well know, married Senator Padme, fell to become one of the greatest evil icons in all of the 21st century, Darth Vader, creating the most epic cinematic plot twist in all of the cinematic history world when he utters those very famous words, Luke, I am your, you know it, father. I knew, I was actually thinking about you all week. I was like, Joe knows everything there is to know about cinema. Oh, gee. <laughs> but the thing is, is that this is how we often read scripture, right? We open our, our Bibles to the middle of the story of Jesus and we read a couple verses here and there and we get really inspired for the day. And then we do it again and again and again. And that's great. We need to be saturating ourselves in the word of God. But when we continue to read this way, we completely miss out on the narrative and the literary genius of these writers, okay? When we read scripture this way, we tend to see the gospels as a random collection of stories about Jesus. We tend to see the parables as subversive ideas and the healings or miracles as random acts of kindness. But we completely miss these genius storytellers whose words are never empty, who never miss a beat. It is perfect, it is strategic, it is intentional, but it is so overlooked. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna take a bit of time tonight. And this is awkward, I can't even move around and I am a mover. Um, regardless, I'm gonna take a, a bit of time to really understand what's happened before and what's happened after this moment in scripture because Scripture was basically written in a galaxy far, far away to a different people in a different time and in a different culture. And so if we as 21st century Americans try to impose our presuppositions and our ways of reading story on these stories, then we will actually miss as 21st century Americans what the most deep and intimate lessons for us are, all right? So are you with me? I know background's kind of a bit of hell for some people, but you got like five minutes? Yeah. Okay, yeah, thank you, thank you. Okay, so today we are nearing the end of what is known as the way section of Mark's gospel. Now, we've been in it four weeks. What's the way section? What's it about? I really, discipleship? Discipleship, anybody? <laughs> we are ending the way section on discipleship. It's Jesus' most strategic and straightforward teachings on becoming his follower, becoming like him in the kingdom of God, all right? And it is not at all random that he chooses this point in the story right here to give his most serious and radical teachings on faithful discipleship, okay? So, chapter 10, verse 32. Where are you at? We will uh, be reading through verse 45, if you want to open your Bibles with me. All right. They were on their way up to Jerusalem when Jesus, leading the way, and his disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going to go up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and ultimately kill him. But three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Debedee, came to him. Hey, teacher, 
We want you to do whatever we ask. <laughs> That's bold. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. Well, they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other on your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup of suffering I must drink? Or be baptized, baptized with the baptism of suffering I must be baptized with? Oh yeah, we can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup of suffering I will drink and be baptized with the baptism of suffering I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard him, or heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials lord their authority over them. But not so with you. Remember that tonight. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. All right. Now, if you think back to the last few weeks of teaching through Mark, this story specifically should sound very familiar to you, all right? In fact, it should sound thematically identical to Jesus' disciples arguing about who is greatest just one chapter early, all right? So for reference, in both stories, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. It goes right over the disciples' head, in one ear and out the other. They just don't get it. Instead of comforting him, they're arguing about who's the greatest among them. And then Jesus reverses the roles of honor and shame. If you want to be the greatest, become the least. If you want to be first, become the servant or the slave of everybody else. So we've seen a story like this, right? You guys remember that? Now again, if we just read this as an isolated event uh, with our own presuppositions, we will actually miss that right here in this moment, Jesus is preparing them for the most important task of their life. So Mark, the author, he opens this section and then closes this section with two stories that are thematically identical. It's the author's way of saying, hey, all this stuff that Jesus is teaching you right now, do not forget it. In ancient scripture, in ancient story, they would repeat words over and over again. Or they would repeat phrases or stories over and over again that basically were like huge exclamation points in the scripture. It was like their way of saying like, hey, catch this because this repetition means you need to listen to this. And, and then inside of these two repeating stories that we've just gone on are like four more repetitive stories of taking idols and culture, flipping them on their head and throwing them out. And that's what Dane and Chris taught on the last couple of weeks. And so Jesus basically says, oh, you want to be honored and great? Well, become shame, uh, give honor to the shameful and the marginalized. Oh, you want to divorce your spouse for any reason because they've hurt you or you don't love them anymore? Well, instead, learn to love them, learn to pursue them, learn to choose them regardless because that's how I love you, my bride. Oh, you want access for eternity into the kingdom of God? Well, then you've got to get rid of the monsters that are in your heart. 
Is it land? Is it possessions? Is it power? Is it money? What are the things that have held you captive to this world? You need to get them out of the center of your life. And hey, on your way out, why don't you give it to the people who have nothing? So you're catching the pattern here. Jesus is flipping these things upside down. So when he includes these two stories that are identical, they are not random whatsoever. As a reader of of the Bible, our dashboard light should be blinking like this. Warning, 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 big stuff is about to happen. So catch every single word. Because Jesus knows that right now, if they don't get what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, which is where we've been the last four weeks, if they don't get the whole package, then right around the corner, when he marches into Jerusalem, towards his execution, where he will be tortured on a cross with bodies in, uh, with nails in his body, with thorns on his head, with whips on his back, if they don't get it now, then they're going to run. So warning, catch everything I'm saying, all right? And it's at this moment where you should feel the tension of the narrative building an intensity. And before he can step into Jerusalem for his execution, he needs to make one more stark point of what it means to follow him and be his disciple. Are you willing to suffer? Are you willing to suffer? And this question, though posed to James and John, is not simply just a question for them but us as 21st century Americans should find ourselves in this question. Where we have all the wealth, all the access to health and technology to keep us as far from the pain of suffering as possible, are you willing to drink this cup of suffering that I must drink from? Are you willing to be baptized with the baptism of suffering I must be baptized with? And right here, I think many of us would say, yeah, I don't know if this is the Christianity I signed up for, right? (laughs) Like, isn't this supposed to be all about my life becoming better and more blessings and all my problems being fixed? What? But this is exactly why I've taken all this time to set up this specific passage, because right here is the key difference between our 21st century American culture and the question that Jesus asks, are you willing to suffer? Because there is this temptation that if you're just faithful enough, then Jesus will give you a nice, comfortable life with an abundance of finances, with a healthy family, with a home on the east side of Costa Mesa. If you're just faithful enough, he'll heal your child, he'll heal your illness, he'll fix your problems. If you're just faithful enough, God will give you the life you've always wanted free of pain, free of trouble, free of tribulation. But I wonder, like, doesn't this sound just like the Israelites in the desert? Oh yeah, we'll follow, we'll follow God if he gets us out of slavery and gives us the good life we've always wanted. But the moment stuff hits the fan, hey, build an idol, worship false gods, right? Hey, take us back to Egypt because slavery is better than this. And spoiler alert, a ton of people that left Egypt for the promised land never even made it to the promised land because they suffered so much. I mean, doesn't this sound just like James and John, this American ideal of distance from suffering? Hey, Jesus, yo, we have an idea. When you get raised to glory, 
you know, maybe me and John, my brother, could be on both sides of you, one on your right, one on your left. And like, yes, you'll be the greatest, for sure, for sure, for sure, but second greatest in the world. We could, we could settle for second greatest in the world, right? And the disciples, they're not, they're not any different. They just are mad that James and John beat them to the punch, right? And Jesus is like, oh, you want to be on my right and my left when I'm raised to glory. Yeah, that position's already been chosen. And as we later learn, it's two criminals whose bodies are nailed to a cross, one on the right and one on the left of Jesus. Oh, you want to be on my right and my left when I'm nailed to the cross, raised in glory? You don't have a clue what you're asking. But don't worry, you'll experience it one day. <laughs> and I mean, try telling this American ideal to a persecuted Christian in the Middle East who literally holds on to their faith if it costs them their life. Try asking them if their faith in Jesus keeps them far away from pain and suffering or to the foreign immigrant in America, to the black men and women around the world, to the Haitian under the heavy yoke of oppressive government, to the Ugandan with no hospital nearby, to the Southern Asian whose slum has no access to clean water and is tainted uh, sewage. Ask them if faith in Jesus is free of pain and suffering. Ask them if faith in Jesus will give you the comfortable life you've always wanted, and they'll all tell you the exact same thing. No way. No way. And so as Jesus spends this entire section flipping the gospel, or, or flipping cultural idols on their heads, and then throwing them out, we now have to face this cultural idol of our 21st century America, of being as distant and unfamiliar with suffering as possible because this just isn't the goal. In fact, not only is it not the goal, it is an idol. And then Jesus goes on, uh, verse 30, uh, something like that, I, I forgot my notes. Uh, he goes on to call this kind of living pagan or evil. He literally, he calls his disciples together and says, you know that the rulers of this world lord it over each other. And then their rulers lord their authority over you, or over them. But not so with you. It's not going to be that way with you. Because Jesus needs a people whose faith is unshaken in suffering. And who are completely unpersuaded by the riches and power of this world. Because suffering is the only thing in this moment that he's able to guarantee his disciples. Not glory, not position, not power, <laughs> not even safety. But when there is suffering, are you in or are you out? Do you follow Jesus because he keeps you far from suffering or do you follow Jesus because he is your hope in the suffering? That's the question right there. I think of the stories of faithful followers of Jesus, that when plagues came to town, the Christians came to town. When there was no clean water in a village, the Christians brought the clean water. When there was no food or clothing, the Christians brought. Or that when one of us couldn't pay our rent, the faithful follower of Jesus paid it for us because their security and hope isn't in money and things anyway. 
Or what about the people whose mom or daughter or husband have been in the hospital and it's not, hey, I'll pray for them. It's let's get on our knees right now in the middle of suffering and let's pray together. And when they passed, it was the faithful Christians whose arms were the first around you. Because the faithful follower of Jesus is not meant to be distant from the suffering of this world. They're meant to find God right in the middle of it. The faithful follower of Jesus is not meant to be distant from the suffering of the world. They are meant to find Jesus right in the middle of it. And that is a subversive idea of Christianity right there. And I don't know why, but it's not God's primary goal to get us out of suffering. I mean, and I've seen him do it. Like, I've seen people healed. My mom and I were dirt poor when I was born. We had nothing. And she makes an amazing living now. I've seen people who had no qualifications or reasons for getting the house that they got, but it seems like God just moved mountains for them to get the house. Like, I've seen that. But I've also seen faithful followers of Jesus suffer more tragedy and pain than any one person can imagine. I've seen faithful followers of Jesus living on the streets in Haiti, under tin roofs in Guatemala without a dime to their name. I've seen faithful followers of Jesus lose all their money when they were never irresponsible with it in the first place. And I've seen faithful followers of Jesus die way too soon, be crippled in car crashes, fight cancer and autoimmunity when they treated their bodies like a temple. And I'm not going to act like I haven't or that everything in this world is just going to turn out as you or I would like because it just might not be the case. But I think that's why Paul gives us this beautiful hope in Romans 5. And I just want to read it over you. It's a little long, so stick with me, but it's just so beautiful. Therefore, since we've been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently look forward with joy to sharing in God's glory, which we later find out <laughs> is Jesus suffering on a cross. So we can rejoice too when we face suffering. For we know that suffering leads to perseverance. And perseverance develops strong character. Come on. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will never lead us to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time. There it is. <laughs> Right at the right time. <laughs> Christ came at just the right time. And where am I? Goodness gracious. And died for us sinners. All right. Sorry, guys. Sorry. Okay. Now, um, I want to emphasize more than anything tonight. It is because of the cross of Christ where Jesus showed us what true glory looks like to lay your life down for one another. 
It is because of this that we can stand in confident hope that not even our suffering, not even our death has the last word, because like Paul says, there is a hope and salvation for each and every one of us. And in fact, God wants to use people like you and me who are well acquainted with suffering, because we are the ones who can bring change and hope into this world. To the hopeless, to the hurting, we can bring healing. I mean, how many people out there right now are suffering because of the oppressive sin of somebody else over them? God can use you and I to change other sinners' hearts to bring hope and healing into their life. How many people out there are suffering because we are more concerned about having more than enough than somebody else having just enough? Like, we can change that. We can change the suffering in somebody's life. How many people out there are suffering from curable diseases and cancers, but God just needs more scientists to continue and doctors to continue marching around the walls of Jericho, studying, testing, studying, testing again and again until there is finally a cure. And how many people out there, maybe even in their darkest moments, need to hear your songs of hope, but you just need to write them? I think of people like a man named Jean-Baptiste. I lived with him for a couple months in Haiti. He's the most remarkable man you've ever met. Uh, He grew up orphaned from a very young age. And at his orphanage, he was basically treated like an animal in a petting zoo to get more money to the orphanage. And then when visitors weren't around, nobody was watching. He was beaten and beaten and beaten so that he looked more needy so they could get more money for their organization. He's a man who is very, very well acquainted with suffering and has every right to believe that all of this has no point. And this might seem silly, but I remember that summer watching him learn construction for the first time. And for the first time, he found so much joy and purpose in living because he could give something of value to other people. He realized that Haiti needs more people like him who can build roofs over the homeless and storefronts for the jobless because at one time, he was that person. I think of my friend Eric, who's been told his whole life he's not worthy to breathe the same air as a straight man. Eric is the most beautiful man I've ever met at making sure every single person has a place at the table. At making sure everyone knows they are worthy of love and that they are seen and valued. Why? Because he's been the one who suffered and been on the other side before. I think of people like James and John right here in this story who wanted nothing more than to be the greatest in the world next to Jesus. But in light of the cross, They found it more valuable to to give than receive, to serve than to be served, and even to suffer, even if it meant death. John was later exiled to the island of Patmos. James, his brother, was beheaded by the king Herod. What is this hope in the middle of the suffering that these faithful followers of Jesus know? And I just wonder if today some of us need that hope. 
Maybe for the first time, maybe you don't even know Jesus, and today you are invited to receive that hope. Maybe today your life is just a total wreck, and you cannot find yourself out from under the weight of suffering. But even you, tonight, can have hope in your darkest moments because your hope of resurrection is far more compelling than the death you're facing right now. Because Jesus has made you right with God, God can use you to bring heaven to earth, his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I just want to add tonight too that like we do believe in healing, 100%. I, I think this can sound slightly fatalistic for sure, but we believe in healing. And so maybe tonight, even as we worship and take communion and there's going to be a prayer team back here, like you need to come forward tonight and be prayed for healing or you need to be the one and go pray healing and faith over somebody else. We rejoice over those moments. We love them. And we look forward to the day when Jesus will be fully united with his bride. And every knee will bow, every tongue confess. He will reign as king as heaven and earth become one reality and he will wipe every tear from every eye and there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more pain for those things of this world will pass away. And so tonight, as we come to the communion table, I just, I want to take a moment to acknowledge I'm not preaching at you. I feel like more than ever in my life, this is the message that I need to hear. I feel like every time I preach, I have to deal with the hell of whatever that passage is. And this week alone has been one of the hardest weeks for me to put one foot in front of the other. But so tonight... Beyond you receiving a message, I want you to receive the Holy Spirit. I want the Holy Spirit to come tonight as we take a moment to break bread and drink the cup of suffering that Jesus talked about. Our own sin. Our own sin is what led us to kill our own God. Talk about suffering. But it is in light of the cross that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Forgiving every sin, making us clean before God. And it is because of the cross of Christ that you and I can have hope. And we can be patient on this side of suffering because we know on the next side is resurrection. And so will you just take a moment to pray with me? And I just want to invite the Holy Spirit. Um, God, we take of this bread tonight that represents the body that suffered for us. We drink the cup of suffering, the blood that you shed for us. God, we thank you that your Holy Spirit goes far beyond words that we can share, moments that we even feel. And I just pray tonight, Lord, as we worship and as we stand in the truth and the reality that we are all sinners who will face suffering in this world, that you would give us a hope and a strength and a peace and a patience in the midst of our suffering tonight, Jesus. Yes, Lord, we pray your kingdom come.